from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross. Welcome to Kurt Coe's Cars That Matter. I'm here with a very interesting guest today named Chris Theodore. Chris, welcome to our show. Glad to be on. And on indeed, though we're certainly in different parts of the country, Cars That Matter is recorded in Los Angeles. And Chris, you're back east. Is that right? I'm up in the thumb area of Michigan, looking out on beautiful Lake Huron. Well, that sounds like a great place to be right about now, since most of us are enjoying the privacy of our own domiciles (laughs) and a grand social experiment. And for car lovers, it's an opportunity to kind of look back on some of the car history that we cherish so much and maybe read some good books. That's a great segue to talk about your book, Chris, The Last Shelby Cobra, My Times with Carol Shelby. This came out last year from Veloce Publishing, and we're just thrilled to have you here to talk about about it. Well, it's the uh, first book I've ever written, but I really enjoyed writing. It was kind of a catharsis for me because I'd become very close with Carol Shelby and started writing it when he passed away. Then I stopped and we'll explain as we go on through an unusual set of circumstances that were very serendipitous. I came up with an ending to the story, so I decided to restart the book and get it all done, and we got it published late last year. Well, it's a fascinating book, obviously one from the voice of someone who actually walked the walk and talked the talk. You've been a Detroit executive for a better part of your professional life, and obviously your resume really does read like a who's who. Director at AMC, engineering, VP Chrysler Platform, VP Ford, North America Product Development, CEO of Saline, American Specialty Cars. I mean, just across the board, you've had a hand in so many fascinating projects, and we'd like to touch on those as we move through. But so many of the projects involved Carol Shelby. But I have an obvious question, Chris. What does the title mean, The Last Shelby Cobra? Seems like there were an awful lot of them. Well, no, about in the middle of the book, people will find out. But after I moved from Chrysler to Ford, the book tells how I'd already established a friendship with Carol, and it seemed obvious that Carol should be with Ford Motor Company. (laughs) And it tells about the trials and tribulations of actually getting Ford and Carol back together. And then we started slow with a couple of projects, the Ford GT. Then we decided to do a modern Shelby Cobra. Was called the Shelby Cobra concept. We introduced it at the Detroit Auto Show in 2004. And although Carol and I had plans, we had hoped with Ford Motor Company to do that car and put it into production. That never happened. And in fact, we also had the good fortune of filming the development of the vehicle with Carol from the beginning sketches all the way to the introduction of the car on a show called Rides. That was a fascinating chapter in your book and indeed one of the best documented concepts in history. Let's talk more about that, but I guess before we do, we should kind of go back to the beginning. I'd like to imagine that a lot of our listeners already know about the Carroll Shelby story from his beginning days in racing and Le Mans win with Aston Martin in 1959 and up through all the great Ford GT versus Ferrari wars of the 60s. But 
What happened afterward is probably a little bit more opaque to a good deal of our audience. And I think that's something that you probably know more about than just about anybody. After the last Shelby-branded Ford Mustang, which I guess would be the 1969-70 GT350, GT500s rolled off the line. Carroll didn't really have much to do with those other than putting his name on them. The story becomes much more opaque. What happened after that? Well, between the 70s and let's say about the next 10 years, if you think about it, Ford Racing basically folded up shop. Carroll couldn't build a new Cobra because the new safety and emission standards just made it far too challenging. So it kind of got it fed up, headed out to Africa, did big game hunting. and That's right. And crop dusting, who knows what all else for 10 years out there. Still coming back, of course, to L.A. And finally, when he got his fill and his love of Africa done, he ended up coming back to Detroit. And I got a call from his old buddy, Lee Iacocca, who was now at Chrysler. That's right. Just to frame the context, in case some of our audience doesn't know, Lee was obviously instrumental in developing the Mustang, but he was such a mover and shaker that he was basically at the helm of Chrysler by the early 80s, huh? Well, actually, he got fired by Henry Ford II. Then he ended up going over to Chrysler and saving Chrysler Corporation (laughs) because it was on the verge of bankruptcy. And gave Carol a call and said, hey, I'd like you to take these front-wheel drive K cars that we got and do something with them. I think there's a whole generation that thinks Shelby started with the Cobra when there was a lot of history before that. Anyway, he started building the GLHs and various Dodge Shelby models. And then actually, Bob Lutz, who was number two to Iacocca at Chrysler, he wanted to do a modern Cobra, something like it, because he had an Autocraft Cobra. And basically, that's where the genesis, the idea for the Dodge Viper came about. And Carol came on board to help convince Iacocca that this is a good thing to do. Uh, Unfortunately, Carol didn't get too involved, but that's when I first met Carol because I was doing the truck V10 engine. And I first met him to show him the V10. And he was a little leery, but I said, I thought we could do aluminum block version. And, you know, I was meeting my hero. Well, as time went on, I think most people know Carol had a heart transplant, but he came back just in time to drive the pace car for the Indy 500. I guess he scared the hell out of a lot of people, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The best story was C. Van Toon. I, Carol's driving him around the track at 140, 150 miles an hour, and he pretends he's having a heart attack. And <laughs> Van Toon's terrified. He leans back in the seat and grabs his chest, and Van Toon doesn't know what the hell to do. And then finally Carol says, gotcha, and laughed all the way back to the pits. You can't make that stuff up. What a great story. That was a game-changing car for uh, Dodge or the whole Chrysler group. I mean, the audacity of putting a big V10 truck engine in this thing and really coming out with a modern-day roadster. Of course, they were primitive for their time, but boy, they sure had a following and still do. Yeah, and deliberately were very minimalist and raw vehicles, and I own one and I love it. And there's this tremendous following, and they're still appreciating now. They're starting to appreciate. They absolutely are, especially the early ones. Yep, yep. And so we did the Viper, and then I assume most of the audience know that Daimler Chrysler happened, and it was time for Carol to leave, and it was time for me to go to Ford. And once I went to Ford, first thing I wanted to do, we had a new Mustang on paper. And the obvious thing was 
we should be doing a GT350 and a GT500. And everybody said, no, we can't do that. And didn't I know about the feud that had gone on between Carol and Etzel Ford II? Oh, that's right. Now, to frame it, as I understand, Etzel, as a young guy, was washing parts for Shelby in his shop. Henry Ford II sent his kid to work for Carol. Isn't that right? Yes, and they got along fabulously. Carol was like a second father to Etzel. And Etzel was the marketing manager when some of the Fox Body Mustangs were built. And I think it was the 83 model he decided to put on a GT350 stripe for a special package. And meanwhile, Carol had learned great things about copyrights and so on and trademarks. Carol tells me that while he was ill, his lawyer went off and and sued Ford. Well, Edsel took it personally. And so they didn't talk for many, many years. And the book details how we finally got them back together. And in fact, Etzel and Carol rekindled the relationship and loved each other to death right till the very end. So it was great, but it took time because the inertia within the company, everybody knew there was a feud. And even when Etzel and Carol had made up, it took time to get everybody else lined up to the idea of doing Shelby products. We finally announced that he was going to become a performance advisor to us. And the first project was after we showed the 4GT concept car. The press was very skeptical that we'd ever produce it. So we announced our dream team, which of course included Carol Shelby and a lot of other key people. And then went off and built the car. And Carol was more than just a name attached to it. He actually got involved in the development and tested the cars, loved the cars, ended up with one of the mules, in fact, at the Shelby American in Las Vegas. So then the next thing, like I mentioned, was every year we wanted to do a different show car. So we decided to do the Shelby Cobra concept. Had one of four V10 aluminum double overhead cam, 605 horsepower engine. The chassis used all the 4GT suspension components, 4GT transaxle in the rear, but the V10 in the front. Again, did a modern version of a Cobra. It was the best in show in 2004. And we hoped to get it into production, but that didn't come to pass. That was a great car. It was certainly a polarizing look. I mean, in a lot of ways, it had all the subtlety of a tennis shoe, but it sure did capture the essence of the original Cobra, its shape, its purity of line. And of course, that was part of what Jay Mays was all about in terms of design. You codenamed it Daisy, is that right? Yeah, if you remember, codename for the Ford GT when we were doing that was Petunia. (laughs) Right, that's right. And Petunia, okay, nobody knew we were working on the Ford GT, but when people started to hear about Daisy, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing to just signal to everybody that something else was coming, and it would obviously be another performance car. So it was probably the worst-kept codename of all time, but it was fun doing it. And then we even did a press release before the auto show that we'd send out a little blurb. We called it the 10 Days of Daisy or whatever, and we'd show a little different piece of the car every day to e-blast to the press. And then we introduced it. The car went over. It was polarizing. It's a very tough looking car. Some people thought it looked like a Rattweiler married to a bulldog. Yeah. (laughs) What a brilliant project. How many cars did you actually build? Were there two? There is only one. That's why it's called the last Shelby Cobra. I see. Then the next year, well, if you did a modern Cobra, we had to do a modern Daytona. That was the GR1, is that right? Right. So Jay and I said, hey, we got to do a Daytona. Young designer by the name of George Saridakis came out with this wonderful sketch, probably the prettiest car I ever worked on. 
And then we had the spare chassis. So for the 2005 year, we introduced the GR1 with the body made totally out of polished aluminum. And it's a stunning, stunning car. You know, I'm looking at that design, and it's certainly a worthwhile endeavor for our audience. Well, obviously, to get your book and to read the whole thing, but immediately to Google a GR1 and, and then look at the original Pete Brock Daytona Coupe and see what a fabulous job that young designer, Saradakis, did in sort of interpreting the classic lines of the Daytona, but turning it into an absolutely fresh new vision. Yeah, it was a great job. And of course, Pete's car is a classic as well. So that car was very well received too. The obvious thing that it wanted five years earlier to do was a Shelby GT500. So we were working on the Mustang. Originally, it was supposed to be a 2004 Mustang. That slipped as things happen in the business because of monetary considerations to a 2005 Mustang. And we go through the trials and tribulations first of coming up with a new Mustang, planning for an SVT-built version, which would become the GT500, and finally convincing everybody, even though we had Carol involved with it, to name it a Shelby GT500. Again, we had to convince the marketing people that this was a great idea, which to any car enthusiast is like, duh, obvious. (laughs) And finally had to show them some marketing data. There's a slide that came in, was in Business Week to convince the marketing guys. And they did a survey, not Ford Motor Company, but an independent consulting house went off and did a survey of who would be the best person to endorse an automobile. And Carol beat out Iacocca and all the big names and tied with Pamela Anderson amongst all all age groups. I'm looking at this slide, and it is amazing. There's a picture of Pamela, and, you know, I guess she had some cred, but it seems like old Shell had just as much or more among the car set. That was definitely funny because everybody said, no, Carol's the old generation. Nobody's going to relate to it, and everybody was into Gen X. Well, turns out everybody is into it. So finally, we did the Shelby GT500, and we tell the whole story of that development. Then I retired. Yeah, you took off from Ford around, when, when was that, 2004? Yeah, the end of 2004. I came back to watch the GR1 be introduced at the auto show, then retired and went to work for American Sunroof after a year or so because we knew the Ford GT was going to go out of production. We had put together a plan and then some great renderings with Carol, and we'd convinced everybody at Ford Motor Company except one person to build a Shelby version of the Ford GT in low volume, higher performance. That's a story that nobody knows until I wrote it. So I wanted people to know what could have been. And I'm still going to build that car one of these days. Well, you know, the, the Ford GT has certainly become such a cult object now. You know, when it came out, I remember it was certainly a groundbreaking car, not just because it revived, you know, the look and feel of the original GT40, but also because it was such an impressive performer. But one of the only cars that's ever embarrassed me in public, man, that forced induction kicks in and you can really do a pirouette in the middle of the street, which I did once. Well, that was a dream come true for me doing that car. I mean, you know, I was a little kid racing slot cars and to actually get that car into production. And then and wanted to keep it going. But then the recession hit. In the book, I try to describe, it's almost impossible to describe Carol's personality. He was just a larger than life person. <laughs> he was funny as can be. I understand you got a chance to interview him a couple of times. Yeah, he, he was full of stories. And when I knew him, and very few people knew him in the 70s and 80s, he was just always working on something, always thinking about things, working on various projects. I mentioned some of the various projects he worked on. 
And one day later on, Carol gave me a call and said, hey, Chris, I want to build some cars. This was in 2011. So we started to put together a plan to actually build, as I mentioned earlier, Cobra Concepts, some versions of the modern Cobra, some versions of the GR1. And unfortunately, he went off to raise some money at the SEMA show, came back with pneumonia, introduced that model year GT500, and slowly his health deteriorated and, and passed away. Yeah. Yeah, and they had right. a great tribute for him in California that was just wonderful to be a part of and to see. And Shelby enthusiasts around the world fired up their engines. And it was a great time. And, and to hear all the people and Dan Gurney, I included a copy of Dan's speech. Yes, I saw that. And so I started to write the book and then stopped. Then a strange thing happened a few years later. First, just before Carol passed, I found the moles to the Cobra concept. And so Carol was in the hospital. I sent word, Carol, get well. We're going to go build these cars that we've been planning. And I was hoping that would cheer him up. Unfortunately, he did pass. And then here or so, two years later, I'm flipping through the web and I see Ford Motor Company is going to sell the Shelby Cobra concept car. I said, this can't possibly be true. Why would they sell this car? Well, it turns out that that's old Ford. It suggested to Ford Motor Company we need to raise money to restore the Henry Ford mansion. And why don't we auction off one of the cars? So they decided the Shelby Cobra concept because it could bring good revenue. But then the Ford lawyers got involved and said, wait a second, this car can't be drivable. We don't want to be liable for this thing 50 years from now. Right. So I read this and I check it out and I lay low. And I tell the story of conning my wife into going to visit her sister and stopping at the auction in Greensboro, North Carolina, along the way, just to see what happened. Well. The car sold for a whole lot more than I wanted to spend or an internal price for, but my emotions got away with me. Wife supported it and ended up mortgaging both houses, buying the car because I knew that I could get the car running again. <laughs> so the, you know, the chapter's kismet. It was like fate. The car came back to me. And it's just been a joy to have that car and to tell the story of the last 25 years of my time with Carol, because we became very close friends. We used to talk twice a week, visit each other regularly, you know, whenever I was in town or he was in town. And we had plans and very little had been written about Carol. I think people just thought he was just putting his name on cars. And there's much more to it than that. There's just really talk about bringing it all home. I guess you talk about Carol's sense of humor, too. I had to get a real chuckle out of one of his season's greetings cards that he sent you. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> beautiful little season's greeting card with Santa climbing down a chimney. And it says, season's greetings and every good wish for the new year. Your Christmas ham is now being made to order. And it's signed by Carol. And course you open it up and there's a drawing of a couple of pigs and one's on top of the other one making piglets it kind of said it all and i i let out a laugh and i was reading the book alone <laughs> <laughs> you know it's, it, was, it was a pleasure to open that so i had to keep that christmas card you know <laughs> so. you absolutely did we're gonna take a quick break but we'll be right back to talk more with chris theodore a moment of your time a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. 
wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcocom slash a moment of your time. And we're back with Chris Theodore. Oh, man, so many great cars, and a lot of them that you shuffle the deck, and a lot of cars that kind of get forgotten. The Shelby Series 1, that was a snake bit effort, but it was a beautiful car, the one with the Oldsmobile engine. Yeah, at the time, I was not involved with Carroll. I was still at Ford Motor Company when he was working on the Series 1, and he had approached me earlier about getting a V8 engine when I was at Chrysler, but we didn't have the right engine. And he went off to do Series 1, which was his dream. He really wanted to do a super lightweight car. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that was around the time he started that out, and he got kind of hoodwinked by a guy that wanted to be the new Carroll Shelby. And I'll leave it at that and let the audience read Mm -hmm. the book and figure out the rest. But uh, what started out is fundamentally a pretty solid idea, the execution. Carroll was going through his kidney transplant after his heart transplant, so he wasn't in the best of health. A couple of the investors... One of them made the body panels and ultimately ended up buying the company. And the body panels didn't fit. It was just the execution was not as good as it could be. On top of that, it was supposed to have the Cadillac North Star engine. That was a great engine, 32-valve. That was a really advanced engine for the time, wasn't it? And the Oldsmobile motor was just a smaller version of it, but it was less powerful. I won't go into the corporate politics of General Motors, but originally GM was supposed to supply Cadillac North Star engines and transfer parts to build a car out of it, transfer prices. Uh, There was a management change at GM. That deal fell apart. John Rock, who was head of Oldsmobile, saved the program by offering up the Oldsmobile version of the North Star engine, which was a little less powerful. But the transfer prices went away. A lot of things, a lot of the corporate support went away. And Carol was ill, and, and the final execution of the program was delayed, ended up being more expensive. And Carol was lucky to extricate himself from that. Meanwhile, when that was starting to fall apart, John Coletti, I didn't know this until I started writing the book, had actually been authorized to go try and buy Shelby American. And unfortunately, this other character now had invested in Shelby American, and he jacked the price up to five times its worth. And so that never happened. Or there would have been a Ford Shelby G Series 1 and probably would have been a much finer car because it would have had the full resources behind it to execute it. That's right. Well, you sure got into some details on the cars that matter, which is what our conversation's all about, starting with that Ford GT and Daisy, the car that could have been, and the GR1, and then obviously the legacy that is on every showroom floor today, and that's a Shelby Mustang. Yeah, and then I forgot to mention that I had a chassis invention I was working on, And he gave me a carbon fiber 427 Cobra body, and we started to build, I mentioned building cars, we started to build a proof of concept called Super Snake 2. If you remember, Super Snake (laughs) sold sold a Barrett Jackson for $5.5 million or whatever. We started to build that car together using all four GT parts. I'm working on that car now to finish that car, but that was actually one of the last projects we were working on together. 
Well, it sounds like you've got another book in the offing then, because you definitely haven't written the last chapter. There's got to be a part two of this one. <laughs> well, I hope so. I, I, I want to build, and, I, and you can already see what's going to happen. I want to finish Super Snake 2. We talked about the Shelby version of the 4GT. That's still on my wish list. It turns out the GR1, Lance Stander of Superformance, did a magnificent job of getting the licensing rights to build GR1s. Now, that hasn't happened yet because he's waiting on the feds to come out with a new ruling regarding building complete low-volume cars. That's right. And hopefully, we'll see a little bit of that obstacle being eased. It'll certainly be a welcome development for car lovers everywhere. Whether you're trying to buy a new Morgan or a GR1, it'll certainly be a positive move in the right direction. You know, it's really testament to the fact that these cars are so enduring. Sure, they're classics in their own way, whether the the old originals or the contemporary interpretations. They've got staying power, and they continue to attract enthusiasts across generations. And I can't think of too many cars that have that claim. I think this we're going to, in the years ahead, we'll look back on this as the golden era of performance cars. You know, starting with the cars of the 60s, we'll still have a strong calling. But their reincarnation with all the new technology, today's performance cars are so fantastic. And it's going to be a different world another 10, 20 years from now. These are very fun times that every people will look back on with nostalgia. Pulling out your crystal ball there. I mean, what would you see as the future of racing or the future of the performance car looking down the road 10, 20 years from now? Well, in fact, I did write about it a little bit. And I think the epilogue of the book is, let's face it, I believe, and I've been saying it for a long time, one, autonomous cars have been overhyped, but I do believe in them. They're just going to take a lot longer to happen. But by 2050 or so, it's conceivable that driving on public roads could be banned in the name of safety. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of like racehorses, these <laughs> fabulous cars are going to be on horse farms. I keep Daisy at the M1 concourse where we have a track. You know, I can take it out and exercise its legs, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And then I think there's going to be two types of performance cars in the future. We see it right now with electrification. You can almost get any level of performance you want. All of the cars, right. are, their performance numbers are just off the charts. Staggering. So I suspect we'll end up with two types of cars. One, those electrified cars, they'll be at the track because when you have a world of autonomous cars, everybody's going to be going the same speed, the same lateral Gs, the same rate of braking. And you're going to have to go to these car farms, if you will, to get your jollies. That's right. There'll be two types of cars. There'll be the raw, bare-bone cars where you actually have to have driving skills to get the most out of them. That's the cars we enjoy today then they're going to be autonomous amusement park rides. They're going to have performance (laughs) way beyond the capabilities of mere mortals and just going to scare the bejesus out of very wealthy owners. You get in, you put on the seatbelt, you clasp your hands together, and the car does the rest. Exactly. So I'm not too excited about that latter version. The world's going to change. There's no two ways about it. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to talk more with Chris Theodore. If you're like us, you're looking for a way to make stay at home a little more special. Well, we're going to let you in on our secret. Join Rob Vices to get luxury cocktail kits, toys, tools, tech, and other incredible items delivered straight to your home on a monthly basis. The value is incredible. Your first box is going to be a $400 tequila curation, and you can sign up for as little as $99 a month. Use the code PODCAST and you'll save an extra $50 at sign up. 
So head to robvices.com to bring exciting experiences safely to your door. Remember, use the code podcast and go to robbvices.com. And we're back with Chris Theodore. You know, I really have to marvel at what it took to drive some of these cars in the 50s and 60s. I was fortunate to have a GT350, 1965, early one. I owned it for many, many years. And we did a full ground-up restoration on that car. And when I picked it up from the fellow who did the work, a guy named Kurt Vogt at Cobra Automotive back in Connecticut, I think we finished the project around 2003. And I took it out early one morning and got it up to about 120 miles an hour on those little bias ply blue dot tires with that little skinny wood steering wheel and those crappy Ford Galaxy rear drum brakes. And I thought to myself, cars today, your grandma can drive them. But back then, it really took some skill and it took some nerve. Of course, I couldn't even begin to exploit the capabilities of that car. And to think that drivers like Ken Miles and and even Carroll himself in his early days were challenged with essentially primitive and elemental machines, such basic tires. It was a whole different world, a whole different world, Chris. Yeah, that's not to degrade today's race car drivers, but they're completely different skill sets. Because racing today has changed. I don't enjoy it. I think the racing's heyday for me was in the 60s. And I don't like balance of performance. And I don't like all the cars looking alike and being rolling billboards. That's right. Now, hopefully somebody will come back with a formula. You know, to me, it was sports car racing and Can-Am were the high points in the, in the 60s. But they were analog cars. Yeah. I mean, I've ridden with some of the best. It's a different skill set. Now it's more about precision and very quick reflexes and strategy. So it's just not the same skill set that was required back in the day. And they both require a phenomenal skill set. I'm not, like I said, you can't compare one to the other. But well, Carol, we did Daisy. We took it out at Irwindale. He's driving around the track, he's doing donuts in the car. Oh, man, I saw a couple of those pictures. You had to be just clenching your teeth. <laughs> well, and I got in the car, and what I didn't realize at the time, we rushed that car, and we got it there, and the throttle was sticking. He was 80 years old, and he's driving this car like a madman, and I was having difficulty driving this car because it, you know, the throttle was sticking. And to just jump in and do what he was doing was pretty amazing, and he couldn't see well at the time. Either, oh, so. my God, what a... <laughs> And you got some Carol Shelby stories. That story was Denise McCluggage's story I love dearly. Yeah. Perhaps half the audience doesn't even know who Denise was. Well, if they're young, they probably don't, but she was... Greatest, most underrated race car drivers of all time. She was at Le Mans in 59 when he won in the Aston Martin, and he's going out for the last drive, and he's back in the pits, and all of a sudden he goes back and he puts on his bib overalls. She catches him putting on his bib overalls, which were his trademark. (laughs) That's right. So that was just his little marketing con job to get his name front and center in front of everybody. Well, he did a good job of that, that's for sure. And it paid off? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Well, you know, Chris, this has been a fascinating time travel down the Carol Shelby timeline. You put so many great details into your book. I'd like to kind of get a glimpse of some of your own details. You let on, of course, that you've got one very, very important car in your garage, truly unique, and I can't imagine it being in a better custodianship. Are there some other cars that you've got in the garage that you're particularly fond of? Well, it's kind of an eclectic collection of cars. I try to have some of the ones I worked on. So obviously I have a Ford 2005 Ford GT. 
Uh, it's a special car to me. I have a 95 Dodge Viper RT10 and a 99 Plymouth Prowler that I worked on. Ah, 99 Prowler. That was a fascinating car. And sure don't see many of those, Chris. That was your project? Well, I was definitely involved. My guys were involved. Craig Love was the chief engineer on it. We put Prowler team within, I was running the minivan platform team at the time at Chrysler, and we supported that program. And it was each of the programs, Viper, Prowler, I learned things and carried them over into the next car we worked on. So Prowler was aluminum chassis, all aluminum body. Viper, of course, we had the V10. Ford GT, I insisted that we do an aluminum body and aluminum chassis and So things all kind of built upon each other. So that's why I have those cars as the memories of the lessons I learned from being involved with each one of them. And I love them all. And then I have, like I said, very eclectic mix of cars. I worked for Cars and Concepts earlier in my career where we brought back the Mustang convertible. And one of my mentors was a Ford engineer that by the name of Bob Hennessy that designed every Ford convertible from the early 50s up to the 1965 Mustang. And so I've got a 59 Ford retractable. That was quite a contraption. It's his, and mine still works. Which is a, <laughs> I'm afraid to put the top up and down, it still does it. I have a 66 four-door Lincoln convertible. Now, the other end of the spectrum, my wife's got a 59 Nash Metropolitan convertible, and I restored a little oh. MG midget for her. I have a very rare, which I have to restore now, a BMW 1600 Cabriolet. There were only about 1,800 of those made. That was a hugely rare car, about a 1967 or 8, maybe? A 69, actually. 69. Yeah, and I had, I've had over the years about five different 2002s and 1600. I just love those cars. Obviously, I have a 2002 Thunderbird because we introduced that car. I have the other project car, too, that I got to finish, and that's the Super Snake, so... Uh, There's plenty to do. Boy, it sounds like you've got your hands full, but there's not a day goes by when you don't have something fantastic to drive. If a genie popped out of a bottle, is there a car that you'd love to add to that mix? I'd like to finish some of those dream cars that we talked about. That's more important to me. I mean, clearly, if I had mega bucks, I'd love to have one of the three Bugatti Type 57 Atlantics, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> you probably wouldn't have as much fun with that as some of these others, though. That's for sure. No, that's, that's true. You know what? So I'm sitting here in my office, which has got a fairly large library. And then I finally realized I'd never have every car that I wanted to have. So I got into collecting, if you remember the liquor decanters from the 70s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I must have well over 100, maybe 200 of them. And everything from classic cars to Lotus F1 car, Jimmy Clark car, I've got to a a Duesenberg to a Bugatti Royale. Oh, that's great. So you can have a sampling, of course, Corvettes and Ferraris. Sure. Someday I'll put together a book just called The Concours Decanters. I think that's a fabulous idea. It offers a whole new way of looking at cars and spirits. That's a great bygone era. Well, Chris, you sound like the kind of guy to have a drink with. (laughs) Yep, we can pop open a car and have a brandy. That's really great. Well, you've got some incredible stories to share. I I can't tell you what a pleasure it was to have an evening or two with your recent book, Chris, and I would recommend it heartily to our audience if they really want to get to know some of the details and the lesser-known history that is Carol Shelby. Your book, The Last Shelby Cobra, My Times with Carol Shelby, out last year from Loche Publishing, is an absolutely five-star recommended read, and I would recommend it to everybody in our listening audience. 
Chris Theodore, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on Cars That Matter, giving us some insight into some stories about your career and your times with Carol Shelby. And we've sure had a great conversation with you today. I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And hopefully I'll see you next time I'm out in L.A. Thanks to Chris Theodore for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Edited by A.J. Mosley. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.